And now, Father, blessed Spirit of God and Holy Son who died in our place, meet with us today. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, the noted newspaper publisher, William Randolph Hearst, who had invested a large sum of money in collectible art, purchasing treasures from all over the world, read about some items that intrigued him, and the more he read, the more he wanted. He sent out his agent on search for these valuable treasures, and the agent went all over the world, especially in Europe, searching and searching. Finally, he returned and said to Mr. Hearst, I have found the items you're looking for, the elusive treasures. They are in your own warehouse. Had he only read the inventory of what he owned that was not on display, he would have known that they were his already. Would have saved a lot of time and a lot of expense. And you know, when I hear that story, I think of Ephesians chapter 1. Because God has told us all of the blessings we have in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we spend most of our life looking for more blessings. Instead of realizing that in our own warehouse in Christ, we have it all. Instead of spending time looking for more, should we not spend time understanding what we have? And that's the motive behind the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul is praying not for further blessings as much as for us to comprehend the wonderful blessings that we already have in Christ. Did you notice how Ephesians starts out in verse 4 when we looked at this wonderful long sentence that goes all the way down to verse 14? It starts out in verse 4 with God and it ends in verse 14 with praise to God. And so should our lives. We should base everything on God, and we should be motivated constantly to live in praise to God. If you were to divide the first chapter of Ephesians, you would do well to divide it into two major sections. The first is the praise section, and the second is the prayer section. And praise and prayer go together. It's extremely important that in your life, if you want to be a healthy Christian, you have this balance of Christian praise and Christian prayer. Praise that we have all the spiritual blessings that one could have, and they're all given to us in Christ. And prayer that we might know them better. That we might pass theoretical knowledge to the place of personal daily experience. If you ever think about it, many Christians live very imbalanced lives. 
Not always in the depths of sin. I'm talking about imbalance on good things. One doctrine grabs hold of your soul and that becomes the only doctrine you ever know. And you begin to push it. It's your hobby horse. And when people see you coming, they run in the opposite direction. Why? What I'm saying is good. Well, it's good to a point, but you've blown it out of proportion. Out of biblical proportion. John Stott, the famous preacher from London of All Souls Church in downtown, had his church building adjacent to the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company. I mean, when I say adjacent, I'm saying they almost share the same wall. There's a narrow little passageway in between the two. And that afforded for many years an amazing ministry. But one Sunday, John Stott got up and told his congregation, what we need is BBC Christianity. Well, that's like saying what we need today is to conform our Christianity to the modern media. I mean, that's the effect that it had when he said, we need BBC Christianity. He said it for a fact. And he said, I'm not talking about the British Broadcasting Company. I'm talking about biblical, balanced Christianity. BBC. I wonder if we're balanced Christians. Many lives are imbalanced. We spend too much time on prayer, or or excuse me, too much time on praise. We're, We're maybe focused only on that. We emphasize the positive all the time and sometimes are distant from reality. Sometimes we emphasize the fact that we have everything we need in Christ and we become complacent and never long for more experience, deeper experience, a deeper walk with Christ. The two should not be separated, praising God for all that he's given to us and praying that we might know it better is biblical Christianity. And that's the prayer of Paul in this wonderful section of Scripture. He teaches us a little bit about prayer, too. Notice in verse 15, prayer's motivation. For this reason, what what is he referring to? Well, it's the, the verses previous. The fact that you heard the word of truth, verse 13. You believed the gospel, and then you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and you have a guaranteed inheritance You are God's possession and you should live to the praise of his glory. For this very reason, because of all you have, prayer needs to be motivated. Motivated by the wonderful truths and promises of Scripture. We sing every promise in the book is mine. Every jot, every tittle, every line. And so we should read it as though we really believe that. Verse 15 says that all believers are individuals who express faith in Christ and love for others. Every Christian is both a believer and a lover. That's the sign of a genuine Christian. They love God with all of their heart. They love their neighbor, all saints, even the difficult ones. So Paul says, for this reason, I've heard about your genuine Christianity, true faith in God, true love for others. And therefore, I have not stopped giving thanks. Notice persistence is mentioned. Verse 16, I've not stopped. Verse 17, I keep on asking, how persistent are you in prayer? That's a mark 
of genuine praise. Then the idea of gratitude is mentioned in verse 16. I am constantly giving thanks. Gratitude comes from grace. Grace is given to us by God and overwhelms our soul and we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. This awesome grace that saved someone so undeserving, a wretch like me. And because of grace, my life should be lived in constant gratitude. And the lack of gratitude is indicative of a, of a lack of appreciation for grace. Our prayer should be motivated. It should be persistent. It should be filled with gratitude and it should be focused on the Godhead, the Trinity. I have intentionally, for the last few weeks, focused my prayers more on the Trinity than maybe I have in the past because that's exactly what Paul is doing. He mentions the Trinity in verse uh, 4 or verse 3. Praise be to the God, the Father, who has given us every blessing by the Spirit. And then that long sentence from verse 3 through verse 14, one sentence in the original is about what the Father has done for us and what the Son has done for us and the sealing work of the Spirit. And now do you notice the Trinity again? Verse 17, I keep asking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he might give you the Spirit. I would encourage you to start out every day saying, Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. I worship you. Maybe sing the doxology. And start your day focused on the triune God. And then he finally gets to his request. I keep asking, verse 17. And my focus is to the God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he might give you illumination, a spirit or the spirit who gives wisdom or understanding and revelation or perhaps better the idea of illumination. Revelation sometimes is a theological term reserved for God who reveals to us who he is and has revealed his truth in his word, illumination is where the Spirit of God takes what is revealed and makes it known to us. It's like turning the light on in the dark soul. I love it when the Lord turns the light on my soul when I'm studying the scripture. I have to confess to you that sometimes I read, and boy, I'm in the dark. What in the world does this mean? And that's really scary when it's Thursday and Sunday's coming. So Lord, please turn the light on, on my soul. Give me something here. I need bread. And then the aha moment hits. And that, that is so exciting. And that motivates me to come on Sunday morning and say, guess what God shared with me? And that's what I want to share with you today. So the first request is simply this, that you might know God better. I pray that you'll have this, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that, purpose statement, so that you might know him better. Every time I read that, I think of the Christmas carol and the jolly 
uh, spirit of Christmas present. If you're familiar with the story, it's soon coming. The other two spirits are rather weird, but that middle spirit, the spirit of Christmas present, is the jolly guy. And Scrooge doesn't know anything about celebrating Christmas, but he thinks he does. And uh, the spirit says to him, come in and let me show you about Christmas. I already know about Christmas, says Scrooge. He says, well, come in and know me better, man. Know me better. I already know about God. Yeah, you're a bit of a Scrooge, though. There's no hope. There's no celebration. There's no love in your heart. You say you know God. Well, it's time to know him better, man. Get to know him as he really is. And that will transform your life. Jeremiah chapter 9 is one of the most amazing texts of Scripture. And I have it on the screen for you to see. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might or boast. Let not the rich man glory or boast in his riches. That is, it's not intellectual prowess. It's not physical strength or political influence. It's not material wealth that one should glory about and boast about. But let him who glories, who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What about you? Should we know, Lord, that I am the God who exercises loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth? For I delight in people knowing me and I delight in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. You ought to know that. It was back in 1972 that J.I. Packer wrote a book that has become a bestseller, and I hope you have it in your library. If not, run out and buy it. If you don't have any money, don't eat today. Use that money and buy the book. It's that valuable. It's called Knowing God. He says in the introduction, the conviction behind this book is that ignorance of God, both of his ways and the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Christian minds, he goes on to say, have been conformed to the modern spirit of the world, and Christian minds have been confused by modern skepticism to the place where they're intimidated and we don't know God. But Daniel says the people who know God shall be strong and do great exploits. Why are we such wimps? Why is the church so weak? Apparently, they don't know the God El Shaddai, the God of all power. Knowing God is the only thing worth boasting about. Paul said in Galatians 6, I'll only boast in the cross. It's just Jesus and him crucified, the knowledge of God. Someone has said that the knowledge of God is the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God. It is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls Father, and the study of God humbles the mind, and it expands the mind, 
and it strengthens and comforts the soul. Just about everything you need is found in knowing God. And that's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, oh, that I might know him. Wait a minute, Paul, you're an apostle. You had a personal encounter with him in the backside of the desert. That time in Arabia surely introduced you to the Lord. Yes, I know him, but I want to know him better. Are you satisfied with your knowledge of God? Are you satisfied with your experience of the knowledge of God? I'm not either. And this prayer is for me, that I might know him better. But there's a second half of the prayer. And that's where Paul says, verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that, here's another purpose statement. The first purpose statement was to know him. The second purpose statement is to know what he gives to us, to know the blessings that come to us from God. And how can we know them? Well, it's by the Holy Spirit. Did you notice in verse 18, the eyes of your heart, spiritual perception, some of us need spiritual eye surgery. We need glasses. When's the last time you've had a spiritual eye checkup? Some of us have cataracts that are closing the visibility on our eyes so that when we read the scriptures, we don't see anything. And we need the Holy Spirit to take them off. He's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He's the spirit of illumination. And when he opens our eyes, we see that's why we pray from Psalm 119, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. They're there, we just need to see them. And what do we need to see? Well, Paul basically prays for three things. First of all, that we might perceive God's hope. The hope that he has given to us. That we might know the hope to which he has called us. The hope associated with our calling. That takes us all the way back to the beginning of our Christian life. For the calling of God is the calling for us to, be, to repent and the calling for us to embrace him and become his children and the calling for us, as we read earlier in Ephesians, to be placed in Christ and receive every one of the spiritual blessings. Hope makes the heart not ashamed. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. We read this last week. But before you were a Christian, you were separated from Christ. You were excluded from being members of the family of God, citizens of Israel. You were foreigners to all God's covenant promises. And therefore, you were without hope. There's a lot of people who live by way of false hope. There's quite a few people who live without And that's a hard thing. Fyodor Dostoevsky said, totally without hope, man cannot live. That's why even prisoners will find out some, find some little thing they can do that's productive to keep themselves from going insane because there is so little hope. We're called to hope. 
Why are you downcast, O my soul? Psalm 43. Why are you so disquieted within your soul? Hope in God. Put your hope in God, for you will yet praise him. None of his promises will fail, and we need eye surgery to see that spiritually. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us, Romans 5. Romans 15 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that we, through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, might have hope. And may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe in him. God wants his people to be characterized by hope. You say, Pastor, you don't know how bad things are. (laughs) You're probably right. It's kind of like that camp director who had a sign on his door that said, if you're smiling, you simply don't understand the situation. There's no reason to smile, says the world. Look at how bad things are. Look at how great things are going to be. We need to be reminded of our hope. And it is found in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need to understand what God has given to us by way of his inheritance, which he calls rich and glorious. Now, there's some challenge in this verse to understand the inheritance. Because before, we mentioned that we are God's inheritance. We are the gift that is given to him, presented by Christ, redeemed at the cross. Yet this is referring to not the fact, I think more so, not the fact that we are his inheritance, but he has given us an inheritance one that will never be defiled, reserved in heaven for us. It is the inheritance, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit has guaranteed. It is rich and it is glorious. When Paul left the elders at the church at Ephesus, so this is jumping further ahead chronologically in time, after He had written this letter. He was meeting with them on the beach in Miletus. It was going to be the last time that they saw one another, and they wept. And Paul said this, Acts 20, verse 32, I commend you you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, the inheritance of the saints. Keep your eye on the prize. And Christ has won it for us. So if the calling looks back to the beginning of our Christian life and the hope that we were given when we trusted Christ, the inheritance looks ahead to the end of the Christian life and what awaits us when we see Christ. So it spans the whole of our Christian life, the hope of our calling, and the glorious inheritance waiting for us, and in between the interim period, there's something else we need to know. God has given to us his amazing power. Wow. The scripture tells us that we are to know the hope and know the inheritance. Verse 19, and also 
to become acquainted, to know and experience his incomparable, great power. Paul sometimes trips over himself with the adjectives to describe how great God is. And one of these adjectives is a very interesting one, the Greek word hyperbole. Taken right from the Greek and put into the English. Hyperbole means to exaggerate. That's the way we use it. But its initial definition was simply surpassing what is known. Greater beyond normal measure. Hyper is above. So it's above our story. And it's above our life. And it's greater than our comprehension. The, The power of God is amazingly great it's sufficient it's incredible by the way notice all the words he uses verse 19 he talks about the great power the power of his working that's the idea of energy of might and strength these are all different words to describe facets of his amazing power. What Paul's trying to do is saying to us, God has all power. And that power has been given to us in Christ. Amazing power. We need the inward illumination to understand God's power, but we need the outward demonstration to see God's power. How can we see it? Where's the visible representation of the power of God? Verse 20, this is the power which he exercised, exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It's Christ's resurrection and it's Christ's exaltation. That's where the power is demonstrated. This one who died was brought back to life. Better than he was before in the sense of glorified. Not a human life that would die, but an eternal life that lives forever. It's the resurrection of Christ. God's power is revealed. Jesus conquered death. Raised by the power of the Father. Not only that, he was exalted. He was seated in the heavenly realms, verse 20. Far above all rule, authority, Power, dominion over every other power of this world. And that includes the powers of darkness, which will be mentioned in chapter 6. Principalities and powers, the rulers of the dark world. He's above every name, every title that can be given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he sits in heaven with total authority. All power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go live like it, he says. Isn't that encouraging? If I would just know that, if I would just know the hope that gives me assurance and confidence, that I might just know the inheritance which keeps my eye on the prize and seeing that one day all the blessings he's promised will be actualized. And if I might just realize the power I have for today. John Stott said this double event, the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, was a tremendous demonstration of divine power because there are two powers that man cannot control, death 
and evil. Man is mortal and cannot escape death. Man is falling, failing constantly, cannot overcome evil, has no power to. But death and evil are two things, although we cannot overcome in our own power, God in Christ has conquered both. He killed death to death. He was placed above every power that exists. You say, well, how come he's not ruling? Go back to verse 10. We're waiting for the times to reach their fulfillment. He's waiting for people to repent, 1 Peter chapter 3. And then he'll bring everything to its ultimate conclusion in Christ, under one head, Christ. Now, if you go down to verse 22, you'll see that God has placed all things under his feet, and he's the head over everything, and he's the head over the church, which is his body. But I want you to know two other things that reveal the power of God, and they're also resurrection and exaltation. It's not just the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. It's our resurrection and our exaltation. And we don't have time to talk about those today, but that's chapter 2. Our resurrection, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. We were dead, raised to newness of life. Verse 6. We have been seated, exalted with Christ in the heavenly realms, just like we read in verse 20. You see Paul's argument? You have all power. The church should be a church filled with power. And we are such wimps, cowering before the world when Christ is seated on high. So Paul says, I just pray that you'll understand what you have. You don't need anything else. You just need to grasp what is yours. It was after the Civil War that a veteran returned home to the North and found out that he had lost everything. All his possessions were gone. He was illiterate, couldn't read, and the prospects of finding a job were poor. And he lived for many, many days off of the kindness of the people who gave to a veteran a morsel of bread and a cup of water. But he had one prized possession, and he was quick to pull out of his pocket and show it to anyone who would see it. It was an autograph from Abraham Lincoln. If there were only eBay in that day, he could have sold it. But he wouldn't have. He showed it to everyone he had, and one day he showed it to a person, and the person looked at the autograph and then looked at the other side, and he said, do you know what you have here? He says, I have the autograph of Abraham Lincoln. No, on the other side. Haven't you read this? I can't read. This is a pension from the government signed by the president. Go down to the bank, and you'll get all the money you need to live on. And you and I are proud to be called Christians and have no idea what's in the bank waiting for us, signed by the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might know you and know all you've given to us so that our lives will be lived in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name.